I'm hoping this book is going to be a contribution. You know, not not only for research, but more importantly, um, like your podcast when you're for your listenership. You're exploring these issues of justice, the various disciplines, how they intersect, right? And and when I listen to them, I find I'm stimulated by this discourse from people from different disciplines and different perspectives. And you know, that's where the the game is played. How does it intersect with each of us in our lives and what we do? What turns us on? You know, and and、uh, I'm sure there's any number of guests you've had where you think. Wow, that came from a different walk of life, but I get it, and it just shows me where can I go on my own journey, and and that's what I'm hoping out of this too. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie, and that was Mark Ludwig. Founder and executive director of the Terrazine Music Foundation, discussing his recent book, *Our Will to Live*, a collection of musical critiques and essays by composer, conductor, and pianist Victor Ullmann, created while he was interned at Terrazine Concentration Camp. The illustrations included in this book were also created by artists who were interned with Ullmann. In the following conversation, Mr. Ludwig shares what inspired him to create the foundation and its mission, and how this new book, *Our Will to Live*, is furthering that mission. How it helps to give some measure of historical justice to those artists of the lost generation, and how it helps current-day audiences understand the dire circumstances faced by these creatives. We also discuss musical compositions that were selected to accompany this book. And following our conversation, there will be complete tracks of Victor Ullmann's Third String Quartet, Gideon Klein's String Trio Movements Two and Three, Pavel Haas's work entitled A Sleepless Night, from Four Songs on Chinese Poetry, and, in closing, a work by the cabaret artist Carol Schwenk. Mark Ludwig, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Would you describe the shift in your career that prompted your creation of the Terrazine Music Foundation?、Um, you know, life has very funny twists and turns.、Uh, I am reading、um, a biography on Rabbi Leo Beck. He's a rather prominent progressive rabbi of the early 20th century. Uh, he happened to have also been incarcerated in Terrazine or the Terrazinstadt concentration camp, and there was a chapter about that period. And there were a few excerpts from his writings where he recalled,、um, which is amazing to me still.、Um, he recalled attending as a prisoner performances in this concentration camp, and then also、um, music had been composed there. So you know, this is going back. Uh, over 30 years ago, and already at that time, I had already I had been a member of the Boston Symphony for five six years,、um, and I come from a rather accomplished classical music family, and yet none of us had any idea of this that there was music you know written in a concentration camp.、Um, <clears throat> so 
what um, just propelled me to ask the following questions, and just just a few of them because it led down to many more later. Who were these composers? How did we not know of them? What type of music did they write? How could this be possible in in, in, in such a hostile environment, a concentration camp? What was their fate as well as the music? And what was the quality of it? And so this led me to um, go to Czechoslovakia because Terezin is located northwest of Prague. And the, the music was largely kept in, well, you know, archives, but uh, um, I had access to looking at some scores. And that, that moment of opening up a score and hearing in my mind's ear the beauty and power of music that just astonished me. The quality was amazing. Um, and with that, the names of these composers, I did not know of them. And then to, to learn of their fate, most of them uh, died in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. Uh, one, Gideon Klein, was in Auschwitz but then died a few months later in his mid-20s. In January of 1945, presumably on, on a death march, right? And did great talents. The others were in their mid-40s. So they could have very well had a few more decades ahead of themselves to create even hopefully greater works, but also um, to make an imprint on future generations of composers and musicians, not to mention just the impact for us as listeners. And, and so I was drawn into the, the, the standard, the quality, the power of the music, the histories of these composers. And then on another level, uh, because I was fortunate enough to, to grow up in an environment where social consciousness was so important and so intertwined uh, with um, the arts and my role as an artist, it became apparent that to me, we could look at this music and the history of these composers and artists and make parallel connections to issues today of sense, of intolerance. Um, they could be really powerful vehicles to challenge us, not only as listeners in terms of their music, but their histories. And that has led now to your recent publication of the book, Our Will to Live. Would you give an overview of that and how it came about? Sure. Um, Our Will to Live is, is really a, a combination of the art and the music that was created in Terezin. Um, it, it is part of it, the ongoing journey I've had with this music uh, as a researcher, as a lecturer, and, and a performer of this music over three decades. Um, and, you know, for me, to go back a moment, when I told you that moment of looking at a score... And hearing this music for the very first time, and something so different to my background, and it was mind-opening, right? And and so I, I felt I had the challenge in writing a book about this. How could I perhaps give a similar entry experience to the reader? And so our will to live really operates, I think, on three experiential platforms. One is reading text, text of critiques that were written by a prisoner who was also an accomplished composer, Victor Ullmann. Uh, Victor Ullmann was in the Viennese circle of Arnold Schoenberg in the 1920s and 30s. And then, um, not only having that, but the, what, the riches of artwork that were created by the prisoners that uh, were chronicling a lot of these performances. 
And then the third layer is these musical tracks one can listen to either while reading or later on of um, great performers playing this music that was referenced by Ullmann and his critiques. Uh, and these include members of the Boston Symphony, the Althorn String Quartet, Yo-Yo Ma, and I think most compelling, uh, some survivors who had performed these works in Terezine as prisoners. So we have that, that um, experience, but then the thing that I think really adds is Ullmann, in a sense, through his critiques, becomes our guide into this extraordinary cultural community. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, what it reminds me of, um, it's like Virgil's The Guide to Dante in the Divine Comedy, right? He takes him through the stages of purgatory and hell. And, and having that guide, well, Ullmann is our way. I've added essays to give historical background and context and, and then there are over 500 footnotes. I wanted to carefully annotate because with Ullmann, you know, this is an extraordinary composer, <clears throat> excuse me, but he's also, he's a real Renaissance person. When you read these critiques, he is making references uh, historical um, to artists, whether it's in the visual arts or in music, um, to political figures, etc. He's quoting poets. I mean, it's an incredible memory bank he has, right? And so there are all these references, and I, I, I feel for the reader, you know, have this just in case. For I'll give you a quick example. Um, do you know who Otto Weininger was? No. No. So, and most people wouldn't, right? But he's referenced. And then once you read the footnote about Otto Weininger, who has a quite interesting history, because um, I'll, I'll leave it up for your listeners, but um, he does a, his last act on, in life is a rather bizarre, but it also ties into what Ullmann's writing in the critiques. Right? So you, know, you have that world. The other thing I want to add is the translation of, the, of this from the German to English. This took years. And, and in fact, I, I wanted to take a very different approach. I wanted to work with survivors who the German of Ullmann's period, which is really, he came out of the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's very Viennese, it's very nuanced, it's beautifully rich uh, language. And so to work with them in trying to convey the flavor of those texts. And so these were survivors who either knew Ullmann or maybe attended a performance in Terezin with him, they already had a personal connection, and they had a connection to the content that uh, that's in these critiques. Uh, but more importantly, they were immersed; they grew up in that language, and so that's what we try to capture in the text. Yeah, it's beautifully done, and those footnotes are very helpful. I certainly relied on them greatly when I was going through a lot of the critiques. So, thank you for all of that research and and work doing that. Great. And I, you know what? I don't want to scare away. I was like, oh, my God, it's a book on music and art, and we'll have all these technical terms. And there are some technical terms every once in a while that uh, Ullmann peppers the, the critiques with, but they're not a lot. And, and, and a lot of these we're already familiar with. But if there is one or two that you don't get, you don't have to race off to your dictionary or Google it. It's right there on the page for you to just quickly cross-reference. But it... It, I think, um, and maybe you could attest to this too, you know, the, there is that flavor about it. There are moments where he ha he's witty, he's playful, 
And then there are moments when, you know, he turns around and he's very serious and engaged. He'll make a suggestion. What does he want for this artist? What does he hope for them, you know? Um, there's the humanity of him, uh, you know. And, and then, you know, uh, at the end of the book, when he's writing about his student and friend, Zygmunt Schull, who died. And he died in his 20s. And here is Ullmann lamenting. And he even quotes a, a Schull, a Zygmunt Schull's last words. Um, you know, it, it just... It pulls at your heart, but I think the other part of the equation is it's so inspiring to see that here are people that they needed to express themselves. They needed to reach beyond the boundaries of the confines of a concentration camp, of death and deprivation. Um, and, and that, to me, I find is also so compelling in this story. Also, going back to your point about his uh, somber uh, approach to many of these critiques, the the one on Defleter Mouse where he questions whether or not certain works are suited to their needs. I was curious if you'd speak to that uh, about the works that were put on and and his thoughts on that and and your perspective. Yeah. So what you see is, and you know, and you, you have to remind yourself while you're reading this, this, this was in a concentration camp, but you, you writes about a production of Carmen or Verdi's Requiem, Large Forces, but it wasn't really Large Forces. You had a choir, but you didn't have an orchestra, the large orchestra. It was piano reduction. Um, one has to also keep in context a lot of the music and the instruments, some were smuggled in. Um, some of this is learned or you know, trans, transmitted by memory, right? So the and 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 this is while you're suffering in in, in a concentration camp uh, to do this, all right? The determination you have chamber music, you have recitals, there are lectures, um, but and 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 when you look on the surface and see all this activity, you you get this feeling like you're in a metropolitan area. And yet here you are, we're in a concentration camp where over 33,000 people died. And, and then, you know, the, the think of the tens of thousands that were sent on to Auschwitz, most of who went to the gas chambers. Um, the, the, to me, the overarching thing is that pool of talent that was in that camp was extraordinary. You know, in in the arts and in the sciences, I'll give you a crossover too. So, for example, Viktor Frankl, who was in Auschwitz, had also been in Terezin. And you know, the um, the medical care that was available was horrible, of course, but the practitioners were of such a high level. And um, early on, in the, in the camp, there was a high, rather an alarming rate of suicides. And there was an approach that there would be what they would call readers sent out into the barracks, the idea of reciting poetry or singing, having some entertainment. And this was a way of, of like an arts therapy, if you will, to stem that tide, you know. And and there were these secret performances given at first, but then when the Nazis uncovered that, um, they later used that as leverage where, you know, to keep prisoners under control – and, and, you know, they really they could not care less about what was going to happen in terms of the arts because they knew what was going to be the, it's the final solution. And yet here are people who um, hold on to this as a means of hope 
um, you know, a way to survive to get through. You know, um, it operates on so many levers, le- levels, and you know, I don't want to make it um, a black and white thing that it's just purely defiance, or it's resistance, you know, or, or hope, uh, or healing. Yes, there are those elements. But I'm reminded by one survivor who um, was very close to several of these composers, and, and she said, do not romanticize it. Remember, they were composers, and they were doing what they knew what to do. But it's still, it's incredible. How do you create in such an environment? You know, And, and um, as you read through the book, you, you start seeing the layers of complexity and the challenges, uh, simple thing that we would take for granted, paper, pencil, you know, um, these are cherished commodities, all right, to be able to use it. Or if you look at Ullman, we do the facsimile of the Ullman critiques. Some are handwritten, some are typed. And you even see where he makes little marks in there because it's not like he can do several drafts. Um, to even have access, whether it's a typewriter or to, you know, ink, paper, Pen. Um, this is, you know, he had access for something that, well, I think maybe a realization that if that, if those documents could survive, it was a chronicle of something that transpired. You know, that we did exist. And it wasn't just wiped off. They were wiped off the face of the earth. You know, I, th- I find in, in the annotations, you'll also see. I try where possible with as many of these um, artists noted their transport number and the transports and their dates. All right. It may seem on the surface minutia, but I, I, I want that to be a reminder to people that within the thumbnail of that biography that these people had lives before the war, they had lives of promise, and then they're being dehumanized, given a number. You know, and, and, and it's a reminder of us to even today and in the future that that crushing power of totalitarianism, of oppression, you know, it, to, to me, this is what the book should also be is on one level, very inspiring, but it's a cautionary tale that what do we lose? This, this, look at this talent we lost you know, and to single out a group to make them the other. You know, the cost to not only them, but to to us and to future generations. The other sobering reality that was uh, resonating with me when I was reading the book was that the the choices of Victor Ullman and Carol Hermann to mm-hmm. leave behind the uh, art and these critiques and essays, uh, it's this thread by which we still have a grasp on what was going on there and and uh so would you would you speak a bit about Hermann also of his position as council of elders and and do you did you see a link where he was also perhaps giving those kinds of supplies that were necessary to individuals like Ullmann to be able to write down their thoughts and and document their experience um yeah, that's and then again, quite complex. So here are both men prisoners. Harriman is in an administrative capacity, but it clearly um, is is an, a lover and appreciator of the arts. Um, is trying to facilitate that, and I think not only because of his appreciation, but um, 
their recognition of how vital this is for their fellow prisoners. And you know, you see, for example, these memory plates in the book where they they write to my dear Carol Hermann. All right, <clears throat> so there's the appreciation, if you will, whatever support they could get you know, to, for this. Um, but I I think it's it's this equation of trying to can you imagine trying in uh, to keep a prison population, your fellow prisoners. A somewhat stable, if, if you can call it stable society. Um, here they are in, 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 in within the walls of an old Austro-Hungarian fortress that before it was a concentration camp, there were about, say, 7,500 people living there. It's cleaned out. And at, at a given time during the war, Terezin has a peak prison population of over 63,000. So massive overcrowding. Right. Um, all the systems are beyond stressed. The rationing, right? And and how to negotiate that with? Then you're giving them the culture, and and this is the the, the needle I'm threading. That you know you see this vast array of the music that's you know performed and then what's composed, but then you also see this beautiful artwork. If you didn't know better, you would think. Well, how could this be unless it was a hospitable and, and nurturing environment? And far from it. I mean, this is really, if I had to use some words for these artists, determination, courage, inspiring, right? Um, inspiring to us, but also I'd like to think uh, to those around them. Um, healing, transformative. That would be words that come to mind. But um, Or to go back... For your listeners, um, put yourself in in the shoes of being under occupation. You're being isolated. Um, You wear a star. You have to. You're curtailed from your access. You can no longer attend public events. Your access to buying things greatly restricted. Um, Certain items, musical instruments, art, radios, etc. are confiscated. And then you're sent on a transport, and you're allowed up to 50 kilos if you can carry that much. What do you decide to take with you to an unknown destination? All right. You've already been abused, oppressed, singled out, and, and now you're being sent somewhere. You know? and, and with that, you see people who are deciding among with the usual um, elements of survival, like food, clothing, layers of clothing, Maybe they're taking paints, paper, music. They try to smuggle an instrument in. I mean, you're risking your life. First of all, you're, you're no longer under the Nuremberg racial laws allowed to own an instrument. So you've kept it, and now you smuggle it in, and you have the instance of um, getting a cello in. How do you get a cello in? And the act of you know cutting it in pieces and putting it into the lining of coats, all right, and gluing it back together. Right? I mean, this already, talk about being audacious. But then for any of us, amateur or professional who play a string instrument, um, you know, you play an instrument, you have a connection with that instrument. You have a history. You know how it feels. You know how it responds. And then you cut it up. I'm I'm fortunate. I have a very fine old Italian viola. I cannot imagine. I mean, it, it would also devalue it greatly, but the idea of that act and then putting it back together... Well, that's determination. 
you know, and, and then that is in that equation of what is it to be a human being to survive? You know, we, yes, we need shelter, we need food, right? we need water, we need the basics. But um, among those basics, which we so often lose in that general mix of life, is expression, the arts. And, and, it, and we're really in the Terezine story comes really at, roaring at you. It's both amateur and professionals doing this. And what it meant for somebody to sit in a, well, let's say in, it's wintertime now. Winters are harsh in Central Europe, in a cold attic in a barrack. If you had that, and you had that hour or so, to, to be transported from your lot in life by some piece of music, you know, some dramas or cabaret, you know, have a moment of laughter. You know, there's a critique where Ullman writes about the cabaret productions and he jokes about it, you know, shake, you know, that, and he says, it's not the medicine, it's the audience shake with laughter, okay? And I love that because he still has some humor left. There's, it's, it may be a bit dark, but he has it, you know, and uh, the spirit that courses through the pages of these critiques and looking at the artwork, and then when you listen to the music, it's so beautiful. I mean, the music stands on its own merit, but then when you do pair it with its history, and you know, some people will be critical about that, but I, w- I would, my retort to that would be, um, no, it enlarges your experience, because if you're listening to a Beethoven symphony and realize, or a string quartet, etc., and he's going deaf, all right, and the idea of what he overcame, that his abilities, but it's not only his abilities and his skill set, it was, the, the, you know, the determination of a Beethoven. This is what I must do. This is what I'm here for, you know. And, and I find that similarity. And, and in all pieces of artwork, aren't we further enriched when we know the environment and the history of the creators in which it was, its genesis came from? One of the striking stories that speaks to me in that vein is George Horner Mm -hmm. and his ability to give voice to Carl Schwenk Um, years later. Would you describe a bit about um, Mr. Horner and uh, and also his performance, how it came about with Yo-Yo Ma? So I, I, yeah, I I miss George. You know, you mention his name, I smile. he lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and uh, of all things, um, m- one of my father's doctors happened to know George. And he said, oh, your son is working with music from Terezin, and George was in Terezin. You should meet him. And I, I, I meet him, and he is this very elegant, proper man, Czech-born, but grew up in, at that, in his period, what would be the, the uh, assimilated Czech-Jewish household, which spoke proper German, very educated, you know. And um, what, what, what happened over a, a series of a, oh, two, three years was these conversations. I'd go down to see him, I'd call him, and he would talk about Terezine, and he was very close with the composer Gideon Klein. He, he knew these people, and he performed in Terezine. And um, he then, in one of our conversations, 
he tells me, I, I have um, some pieces that were written in Terrazine, cabaret pieces by Carol Schenck. And, and I'm really excited. I'd like, I, I can't wait to see this. And I said, oh, I said, you know, when can I see them, right? And he says, you can't. And he points to his head. He says, they're in here. And so he had them from memory. And he, and he sits down and he plays them. And, but he tells me one. And um, this one really crystallizes my, why, why I do this. And I'm so dedicated to it. Here is a, a man who's a prisoner in a concentration camp and writes a tune, How Come the Black Man Sits in the Back of the Car? That solidarity with somebody else who has a plight, all right, the inequality, that we're in it together. Right? And, and to me, this Terrazine story, yes, we want to preserve that unto itself, but I think the way you really preserve it is the lessons you learn from it and how you apply it in the world today and in the future. And it is a story of our humanity. It's not just about being Jewish or the Holocaust. That's so important, no question. But where does it take us in the larger framework? Right? And so then, you know, George, he would never play publicly. Um, he once played in my parents' living room. And then, you know, over time, I, I, um, fortunately, Yo-Yo has been a, a very strong supporter of Terrazine Music Foundation over the years and, um, and a good friend, on, you know, on, for so many years. Uh, I had been hoping that he would uh, perform at our annual Terrazine Music Foundation Gala in Symphony Hall in Boston. And, and we finally had a date where he could do it. And he was going to do He did this entire program. It was beautiful. And then I mentioned to him about George Horner. And he said, well, what do you think about, you know, maybe we play together. And I love the idea. Okay. You know, I was ready to jump out of my shoes. But I also thought, oh, my God, I don't know. George doesn't play you know, publicly. But what do you have to lose? You don't ask, right? You know, so I call him up and uh, I can hear in his voice. He's excited. And he says, yeah, of course, I will, right? And, and, and Which is amazing, right? But then I have to say, you know, at the time George is about to do this, he's about to be 90 years old. So put yourself in the place of somebody who wasn't performing publicly for decades. And he's going to not only get on the stage of uh, one of the greatest halls in the world, Symphony Hall, he's going to play with Yo-Yo Ma. You could say that's chutzpah. All right. Yes. But I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. Right. You know? And <clears throat> I will never forget that day. I cherish that day because George is up there with his sons. And Yo-Yo comes in early afternoon and spends the afternoon with him in, in the dressing room. And they're playing, they're rehearsing the songs. Um, they're having the time of their lives. I am, too. And then when you, you know, my my only fear was. And I had said this to George a few months before. I said, now, you know, you're going to walk out on that stage and you're going to find up piano, and there's going to be that big audience. And, he, and, he's, and, and I said, are you bringing music out? Do you need to have it written out just in case? And, and he said to me, he said, you could wake me up at three in the morning. I'd be able to play. So he goes out there and plays there like he's in his living room. All right. He was so comfortable and he loved it. 
I, I don't think he wanted to leave the stage. It was it, it was magic. And you know, to this day, if you when you listen on the soundtrack, which is part of the book, and you can hear it in the audience, right? And 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 that that live quality is transmitted in that moment. And and it was just the beauty of here's this phenomenal artist Yo-Yo Ma playing with George Horner, a survivor, and they're coming back with music that was written in the '40s, the early '40s. And unfortunately, Schwenk was murdered, um, but the music lives on, the story lives on, and the message uh, that that's sheer beauty. It's priceless. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you asked me a while back, you know, the journey of getting involved in this, you know, over 30 years ago, if you had mentioned moments like that or that I got to play um, Gideon Klein's lullaby for the Dalai Lama in, in, in the U.S. Capitol, you know, or playing in Sarajevo after the siege, you know, so many other moments where it's a crossover of cultures, Right. And, and you realize it's the beauty of the human soul, the beauty of cre- creativity. And, and that I'm so grateful for. And what I hope is that the book is that kind of journey, that first journey, if you will, and an entree um, for people to realize the power of this and the beauty of it. Yeah, it certainly is a, a work of historical justice, I, I would say. Would you agree with that? I'd like to think so. Yeah, very much so. Because yeah. justice this is key, you know. You know, you, you come away with one level appreciating the art, but um, the other thing is, will it sort of nudge us, prod us? The world we live in today, you know, and, and you can think of on so many levels the human story of, of, of human rights being abused, you know, and, and, and whether it's afar or close to home. You know, if you go back, for example, if, um, you know, in Primo Levi's, The Drowned and the Saved, which I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's, it, it's a must read. It's the last work he wrote. And um, he, he writes about what is called the gray zone. The victim is at, at times brought in and co-opted to, to behave in a way that's almost like an accomplice. Right. And and the abusive, oppressive characteristics of it. And he starts with that examination in terms of his life in Auschwitz. And he jumps then to the contemporary context. All right. And so he would be if he were talking to you today about it, he could be talking about what's going on with the Uyghurs. Or he could be talking at close to home domestic violence. All right. I mean, there's so many layers to that consciousness. And so um, justice is a very good word for that. How did the uh, tracks that you chose, it's uh, just about three dozen of them that are part of the book. How did you go about choosing them? And I noticed that uh, Schwenk's work uh, has the most number. I think it's a, a half dozen in there. So how did you pick the composers and the pieces? I was curious. Uh, good question. So I, a few things. First off, because one will have access on the website to this, <clears throat> to, to download, um, we will be adding more and more as we go along. All right? But I chose those be- for the following reasons. One, there a lot of these works are referenced by Ullmann in the critiques. But it was also important for me who was performing them. 
so example, Carol Berman singing this song set to Chinese poetry uh, by Pavel Haas. This was written for him in Terezin. And so the fact that he performed it there and his performance years later, I thought that was most appropriate, right? Cabaret pieces by Carol Schrank. There are about, I think, a half dozen of those selections. But if you notice, they're very short. And some of them are uh, the same song, but one is an arrangement that could have been very much like had been done in Terezin, but then we have George Horner playing them. And and I thought, there's the personal touch that I want to add. And then, of course, with him playing with Yo-Yo Ma, you, you, you've got to include that too. So I, I like that you, you have a way of looking at the various perspectives of that particular musical cube, if you will, right? Um, so you choose then the works that were done, you know, that were composed in Terezin by Klein or by Ullmann himself and Haas and Krasa. Just to give you a sampling, there's so much more to be mined, so much more to, be, to listen to. And we will add more on our website. But the, the real idea is give you enough of a sampler, you know, that you think, oh, you know, I'd like more. And, and you can even reach out to the foundation as a resource that... What else could we listen to? Plus, we do a, a, what we call a track of the month. So we're always trying to just get it out there where, oh, here's yet another piece that you may want to listen to. And not only music that they wrote during their, their, the war, you know, they were very active and promising before the war. And so to hear that as well. One of the programs that uh, the foundation has, I believe, is Finding a Voice. And I was curious what goes into that. And also, I've had discussions with one other guest on the podcast about Ulman finding his voice and, and whether or not it would be even appropriate to look at it that way. That Ulman describes Terezin as the true school for masters. And I was curious what you thought about all of these composers who, the young ones, but also the ones that were mid-career, finding their voice what, what are your thoughts on that and, and how Terezin developed or called out the talent that was already there in them? Mm-hmm. And how does your current education program segue with that? So for finding a voice as a curriculum, the, the, for me, my, my approach in creating it was to take that music and its history and connect it in a contemporary context. And the idea of finding a voice was as they and, and, and all artists are, you know, they're constantly, you can say they're giving voice. And maybe some will even say I'm in the process of my voice evolving. Right. But for me, the finding of the voice was for those students who come in contact with the curriculum to recognize every one of us does have a voice. And and. How do we find that voice and in which, what way do we use it? And boy, that can apply on so many levels. Um, well, I'll give you an example. My six-year-old, his voice, what words does he use? How does he use them? What words shouldn't he use? Okay. Uh, all right. But um, no, that voice there. And then there's the other side of the equation, which is as you have your voice, How do you find a way to listen to that voice across from you and to cherish that or to value those voices? Because here were voices historically that were not valued. I I can say not only only marginalized, but destroyed, silenced. And 
we all run that risk in society of doing that at any given time period of silencing voices. So how do we, one, find our voice, but how do we encourage others to in turn find it? And, you know, part of that also is just dialogue. If you're in good dialogue, that person is allowed to voice, right? So that to me was the sort of the key thing about finding the voice in, in the curriculum. Um, that is always key in, in, in our education programs, uh, even in our will to live, which will be in another aspect of um, Holocaust education for us, is not only having the voice, but then when I talk to you about the gray zone, relationships within it, relationships between victors and victims and oppressors. You know, and that gray zone in between, you know, we are all walking that in some way, aren't we? Every day we negotiate in the choices we make, all right? What are we pulled towards? What we elect not to be pulled towards? You know, um, social justice, looking at our system, for example, how does that play out? And, and that's the voice. There's the voice. There's the voice of the individual. But then what is the voice of the society in which... We permit, or we look the other way, or we choose to take a stand. Hmm. I hope that answers it in a way, but it's it's overarching. And and uh, and then uh, with the composers, you did ask about like Ullmann or Klein and Akrasa. You know, their their voices will. I I think you know, like most artists will say, you know, I'm I'm I I, I maybe you early on are trying to find your voice. And then when you finally you you sort of get in that groove, and but it's evolving, and of course, look, you could have five or six other artists, painters, composers, etc., writers talk to you about this, and they may each have a different take on that. You know, um, are they finding it or did they find it already? I don't know. You know, there's the semantics of that too. You know? One of Victor Ullmann's friends from. Uh, during school, Friedel Dicker Brandeis. Before the, the camps, he had dedicated a piece to her, Windla in the Garden. I was wondering if you knew anything about that connection with Ullmann. Well, she she was an amazing presence in, in, in Terezin. I mean, you, you, as, as this educator, as this carer for children, um, how she could, in a sense, create programs for them to channel their their creativity. You know, when you look at the thousands of works of art, and I, I went through them during my Fulbright um, in, through the, the Jewish Museum in Prague, and then in Palmatne Terezin, and you see these works with sketches and paper and, 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 and watercolors, right? And how she found the way and the energy to engage these children. Um, and, you know, mind you, children were not permitted to be educated under Nuremberg racial laws, but also in the camp. And here they were risking their lives to do that. And she was one of the preeminent figures. She was a powerful figure in that camp. The, I also, I, and I, I've not crossed this, but, you know, Ullmann had a, a son, Maximilian, in Terezin. <clears throat> and we know that he, he sang in, in, a, in a children's choir and, and likely sang a couple of the arrangements that Ullmann wrote for the kids. But uh, um, it, it's, 
it's quite probable that you know she had an impact on, on that child as well. She did on so many of the children there, and there were others. All right, Gondel Redlich, all right, another name. There are uh, these people that um, worked with the children. Gideon Klein, composer, but he was also working with children. Um, how they were able to do it, have the stamina, have the courage to do it, and the determination. You know, she she was a wonderful case in point. And then when I write about the the artists in, in the book and you a particular group, um, it's it's heartbreaking, but it, it's also it's just you, you you sit back in awe of that spirit, you know. Um, they, in, a, in their own way, were the, showed not only the power of art, the power of education. Were there any pieces of art and or compositions that particularly resonate with you when pulling together all of these materials? I'll tell you what, I, I'll give you um, three quick ones. All right, because there's like a little storyline to each one. <clears throat> so there's Pavel Haas's Four songs set to Chinese poetry, of which I spoke briefly about with Carl Berman singing. Um, songs of loneliness, exile. And there is this one song, Sleepless Night. And in the piano, it starts off with this tossing and turning. I mean, what you, you hear this, and every one of us can relate to when we have a sleepless night. You know, you're tossing and turning every which way in, in bed. Here, you hear it in the piano line. Then the talking of when they will meet again, and and I, I he had um, um, a daughter, young very young daughter. He he and his wife divorced. She was not Jewish, and this was with the hope that the daughter and wife could be spared transport, which fortunately they were not on a transport, and they did survive the war. But it's it's like to me that message in a bottle, and and as as a father, and I think to myself. Here is this man in, in this camp where perhaps he felt that he was not going to survive. Would he ever would he ever know his daughter? And probably not. And so how would she know him? And it could be through that song, it could be through his music, um, through the few people who survived who knew him. So that's one. Uh, the String Trio by Gideon Klein. Three movements. The middle movement is a folk tune that his nanny sang to him. It's the very last work he wrote before he sent to Auschwitz. Phenomenal music, all right? It, it, it's what drew me in. It was my initial contact with Terezin, but also the story of it, and the, it's about this wild goose, the mother goose is flying in its shot, and as it's descending to earth, what will happen to my babies? And it breaks your heart, you know? Um, and then let's go to Ullmann. Let's let's give him his due. You hear the opening of his third string quartet. This this lyricism, the nostalgia of a sweeter moment, and then it's it's like this musical window of the landscape of Terezin psychologically, because there's this demonic dark waltz that comes in abruptly. Then there's, it's followed. There's a fugue that's very desolate. And you almost feel rhythmically as it trudges along, just almost a zombie-like character. And then there's that final movement, which is, I think, so defiant in nature. And the violin at the end screaming out. Um, 
Now you could accuse me, I'm reading too much into it, but it's what resonates with me. Maybe it will for you, or it'll be something else for the listener, but the power and the beauty of that music, right? Um, or Hans Krasse, who wrote the children's opera before he was sent to the camp, and, and it was written for a Jewish orphanage. And those kids couldn't perform it publicly under the Nuremberg racial laws. And they're sent to Terezin. And then the Nazis order him to rescore it because it's being used for international Red Cross visit in a propaganda film. And those children are filmed in it. You see them. And most of them perished. And, and then the very last piece he writes, a Pasacaglia and Fugue for String Trio. And it's this dark ostinato but it is so beautiful, the harmonies. Um, it's heartbreakingly beautiful. And then he, he comes out with this fugue at the end, which is very dance-like. And, and at the end, there's this glissando, this, this run-up of notes, like the strings, like just thrown into the air. You know, that's up for interpretation, all right? All right. I, the one thing I, I, I challenge, like my students, when, and I teach this course at Boston College, I show them Guernica. And if you know, in that far right-hand upper corner, there's that open space, that one open space. And, and I, the challenge, what do you read that space to mean? Is it freedom? Is it looking up? Is it the sky? What is it? Is a portal out? You know, Could it be with the cross of Diop, when it just goes off the page? And that release into what? I, I, and again... I'm not speaking at that moment with the hat of a historian or that I've documented it. I'm speaking as somebody that I'm just listening to it and what it, what it evokes from me. What about Don Quixote's overture that, that Ullman wrote? Do you have any thoughts on that? What prompted it or your mm. description of it? No, I, um, you know, I, and I, you know, I've already taken a lot of latitude in our conversation about what I interpret things. Right. <clears throat> but, um, you know, there. Are, you think of composers who have written something on Don Quixote, and and well, think of Richard Strauss, his epic tone poem. Okay, um, it's a story that it, it captivates our imagination centuries later. You know, uh, the idea that the dream, you know, it's it, that dreamer, you know, of a different world. Um, so I, I that on something like that, I leave that again to the listener. But I, I also love the fact that, you know, here's something that where Ullman shows his broad range of his curiosity intellectually. All right? He goes to Cervantes. He goes to Spain. Just like Haas, what does Pablo Haas do? Four poems set to Chinese poetry from the Tang Dynasty. All right? These are true cosmopolitan human beings. They're not just saying, I must do something German or Czech. They're exploring and taking us on that journey with them. And, and you have enabled us to go on that journey as well with all the work you've done. So thank you so much. This is uh, the foundation and this book are such resources. And uh, I would love to hear what your thoughts are for the future, what the legacy you want the foundation to leave and, and the work that you have planned for the future. Well, I want to believe that we've been laying the seeds of that in the following um, you know, when I first started, <clears throat> the, 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 the key focus was trying to preserve and, and extend the awareness of this repertoire, not only to artists, but to listeners. 
And then the next stage was seeing that uh, with my hat of social consciousness education. So that's been ongoing. But then I thought, what beyond that could work in tandem with that as a memorial? You know, so often when you think of memorials, not only just the Holocaust, but in general, you think of a plaque, all right? You, you think of a building, you know, a library, all, all very important in their own way. But could there be something that is maybe outside that, walks outside that? And to me, it was commissioning because as these voices had been silenced, perhaps the greatest homage to them was to help the voices of today and tomorrow, the emerging voices. So to find those voices, to commission them to, for works, um, and then the model, I think, is quite different from most commissioning models in the following. One, we don't ask a composer to write a work about the Holocaust. They, they may choose to do that, but to me what's important is this is your voice. It's getting back to finding your voice, right? right? Um, this is your voice, and we are supporting you in that journey, right? Um, and I, I, I get the blessing of getting to work with them. It's very much like what I did with the poetry anthology on liberation. But then um, beyond that, pairing it up with world-famous, world-class artists. And not only because I admire their, 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 you know, their artistry, but also they have the opportunity to play in the great venues around the world. So then a composer gets that chance to be heard by more people. Right. So you, you sort of get away from that, you know, the age old joke was if you go to a contemporary music concert, there's sometimes more people on the stage than in the audience. Well, OK, but if you have, you know, a, a Yefen Bronfman, all right, Garrick Olson, you know, Simona Dinnerstein, just to name a few of the artists that we, you know, we and we work many more that um, they, you know, they are playing around, they're performing around the world. That's the other thing. It's mixing with other cultures, you know. And so I'm hoping that we're, we're supporting the future voices. And uh, along with it, there are times when these artists also elect to uh, perform a work on the same program by somebody from Terrazin. And, and even if they don't, usually in the program notes, there is some connection. You know, um, so that we know where this came out of what what so that we're we're always trying to find that way to get you to explore the following is track 27 victor ullman's third string quartet
Next is track 11, Gideon Klein's String Trio, Movement 2.
Next, Gideon Klein's String Trio, Movement 3. Thank you. 
Track 16, A Sleepless Night, from Four Songs on Chinese Poetry, by Pavel Haas. Oh, mm-hmm. 
We close with track 29 by Carol Schwenk, a work entitled Why Does the Black Man Sit at the Back of the Car? There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the Terrazine Music Foundation and Our Will to Live. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.